Good morning, afternoon, evening. My name is Puno. I'm the founder of Isle of Creatives, and this is Girl Boss Radio. Storytelling is such an interesting skill to have. It's something that a lot of marketers like to throw around. You're like, you gotta have great storytelling. Sometimes it can get really cringy, and you're just like, okay, you're just stuffing a story in there. But also, a good story that hits, it hits. It goes viral on TikTok. I mean, Dodo, they know how to tell a story. It's like, boom, tears, let's go. This Shih Tzu had mats everywhere. How are they gonna get rid of it? They did, oh my God, now it's happy. It's getting trained and it ends with hugging a seal. I don't know, but like it works. And that emotion that I feel, that, mm-hmm, that head nod, everybody's looking for that. Comedians, us here on Girl Boss content creators, TikTokers, and brands. There's some of these brands that just seem effortless. For example, one of the, I don't know, biggest, most beloved brands on earth, Nike. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Creator of Air Jordans, Air Force Ones, Air Max, the swoosh. Uh-huh. If you don't know what Nike is, what? But how does a global brand like this have such a strong voice? Like, who are the people that are making this happen? You know, the term girl boss, it often seems synonymous with entrepreneurs and founders. We would like to change that because there are employees and teams that are doing incredible work. Honestly, work that a founder and CEO have to have, or they can't function, they can't break through, and they definitely can't stay relevant. And so that's why I'm so excited, because today we are talking to Trelawney Davis, who is currently the marketing manager on Nike's global brand team. She is one of the people in this gigantic company that is a driving force in executing on these storytelling ideas that have to reach a global market. It's kind of a lot of pressure. How do you land a job like that? Well, she has put in the work. One of her first jobs was working on a political campaign for the um, <clears throat> Barack Obama, the Barack Obama, yes, beloved 44th, the king of hope, the ultimate charismatic storyteller. I love that guy. And then Trelawney made a pretty big pivot and she swapped politics for entertainment, more specifically gaming at Disney Interactive in their marketing department. And then from Disney, she went to West Elm. And then from West Elm, she went ground zero at Parachute. Um, can we just take a moment to bow down to this woman's LinkedIn page because her resume is blessed. Ah! Trelawney took something unique from each of these experiences, growing her skills as a marketer and really being able to keep up with the technology, with the social platforms, with the new ways of digital marketing. And she uses all of these tools, strategies, platforms to create moments with potential customers that hit. We talk about this in the episode, but marketers, whether it's good or bad, have the ability to create and influence culture. And that's why I love talking to marketers, but not just like any marketer. I love talking to the ones that call bullshit, 
but know how to execute. So they're not just complaining. The common thread about these unique unicorn marketers are that they are incredibly perceptive, observant, and collaborative. And they know how to harness these skills to pitch stories that then have to have enough stamina to make it through execution and stay true to its original intention by the time it launches. No pressure, Shih Tzu. Oh, I'm so excited for this episode because Trelawney and I, we are gonna be talking about marketing at some of the top brands in the world. So let's get into it, shall we? Well, Trelawney, it's so great to have you. Thank you, glad to be here. Here, and you're there, but glad that we're here together. In the virtual cloud of- Yes this world. Yeah, very virtual. Okay, so I want to go back, back, back to when you were in college because this is pretty significant. Uh, You started interning in political campaigns, including Obama's presidential reelection campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're jumping. We're jumping way back, but I mean, so significant. It was like- Yeah. It's weird though, right? Because whenever you're doing something, or or maybe this is just me, it doesn't really feel significant at the time. But then I look back and you go back to these moments and you're like, oh, that yeah, that was significant. That was like extremely impactful and like setting up my life trajectory. But I went to college in Boston, Massachusetts. And one summer, I did an internship with the Massachusetts Democratic Party that also led to an internship with Organizing for America, which was like Barack Obama's grassroots presidential second term campaign organization. I was a political science major in college. So I always thought I'm going to work on campaigns. I want to be a speech writer. Like that's what I want to do. And then, yeah. A speech writer. Very specific. Yes. I, I mean, I love to write and I absolutely love to talk and I loved politics at the time. I still do, but it's just not my life anymore. Mm. And so I just, growing up, I was like, I want to be a presidential speechwriter. Like, that was my thing. But working on Obama's campaign, that was kind of the first time social media had really significantly entered into the world of politics. And around the time I was in college, it started to become seen as less of, hey, this like communication tool for teens and young adults. And it started to become this more serious marketing tool for not only companies, but also for like political change and activism and advocacy. So that kind of steered me on the route of this interest in, yes, politics, but also the power of social media and being able to use social media and digital marketing as a way to create change and not necessarily having to be working on a campaign to do that. So. Mm-hmm. How scrappy was that team? Because when you hire an intern, that can mean you're in it or it means you have to get coffee. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) it depends. So (laughs) working for a couple of those earlier political internships, it was kind of a mixed bag. So I actually never ever in any of my internships got coffee for anyone, which is great. But I also took a lot of internships where I didn't get paid, which also wasn't great. And What was interesting in terms of like the scrappiness of the team, Massachusetts is one of the biggest college states 
in the country. I think mm-hmm. Boston is like the number one college city because you have where I went, you have Emerson, you have all of the UMass schools, you have Northeastern, you have Harvard, you have MIT, Tufts, the list goes on. So we actually had like a pretty big like intern group. And mm. so because we had a big intern group, there was a lot of competition and people wanting to prove themselves so that they can get jobs after college. So because you had so many people who were kind of young and hungry, I think Massachusetts Democratic Party Organizing for America definitely took advantage of, hey, there's a bunch of really, really smart kids who are really passionate and also understand the social media landscape in a way that we maybe don't. Mm -hmm. So we kind of had more autonomy in that way of like figuring things out and being able to lean into things we actually wanted to do. So I think I, I lucked out. It was kind of untraditional internship in that way. And so that internship, though, after you graduated, you just went kind of out of the political world and straight into marketing. Yeah. So transparently, I graduated college with a fair amount of student loan debt and applying for more campaign positions. They don't pay well. That's something that I think people should probably talk about more in terms of just salary transparency. But I kind of realized, hey, if I want to stay in politics, you really have to pay your dues for your first like three years, four years out of college, which I had some friends who went that route and they struggled a bit, but I think they found the work so rewarding that Mm. they, they made it work. For me, I kind of knew like I love politics, but I also just like marketing in general. And I ended up getting an internship offer from Disney that was actually paid pretty decently well. It was in Los Angeles, which I had always wanted to go out to the West Coast. And so I kind of compared my offers. And for me, I was like, Disney seems really exciting. It's different. I've been working the political beat for the last, at that point, it was four years. Mm -hmm. So I was just excited to try something new and also be able to start paying back some of my student loans. So that was kind of what took me out of politics, but I always thought I would go back. I was like, hey, I want to hone this new skill set mm-hmm. in digital marketing and social, and then I want to bring it back to a campaign. And then over time, I just kept getting deeper and deeper into like <laughs> actual like brand marketing for brands and got further away from politics. And yeah, it's kind of where I'm at now. Okay. So I actually worked at Activision. Ooh. Because you were in gaming, at Disney yes, games. I was. When you say Disney games, what does that mean? Like what platform is it? Sure. At the time, I worked for Disney Interactive, which was everything on the digital side of Disney. So think of like .com, think of the social for everything, and then games. I worked um, within kind of the console games and mobile app game space. And so when I started at Disney, our huge game was Disney Infinity and then Disney Infinity 2.0. Um, so I worked really closely with like the Marvel team because there were Marvel characters in that game. So that world is very, very familiar to me. I can't <laughs> believe you worked at Activision. Yeah. What were I, you doing over there? Well, so I used to work in advertising. I was in DDB and one of our clients was Activision. So I worked on Marvel games as well. Nice. Um, like Civil War was one of them and then Call of Duty and Call Guitar Duty. Hero. These are big ones. <laughs> These are huge. And then 2008 happened. I got laid off. Mm-hmm. But then I switched to UX design because that became a thing around 2008 and then got hired as a UX designer for Call of Duty. Nice. So I was I was like in gaming. That's like the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you know what's rare? Like I rarely meet other women who have worked in the gaming space. That's why I was freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I had the best time doing it. I met people that I would have otherwise never met. And yeah. like, I don't know if you grew up like gaming, but I grew up with an older brother and cousins mm-hmm. who we would play Nintendo 64 growing up all the time. Yeah. But I wouldn't ever say that I was a gamer. So going into that space, I was like, this is somebody's dream job. Maybe not mine, yeah. but I had, because my whole job, like I worked in social. So it was all about interacting with the community and telling stories to like these diehard fans. And especially with Disney, you have a lot of like true like diehards. And so, yeah, it was a fascinating job. And I, I just met so many incredibly smart, creative, talented people. But ultimately I kind of learned like, I love Disney. I love this job. I love the people I work with, but I'm not passionate about gaming. So that's kind of where I pivoted a little bit in terms of where I worked. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting beast. I think what I learned is, you know, Call of Duty was huge. It had 20 million players. So everything we did mattered. You know, that was the part that I was like, whoa, this is Mm -hmm. intense. I envy you being on social media because at that time that's all i wanted to do was have connection with the community but there were so many ndas Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was all locked up and the developers were having the community really like you almost had these factions of gamers that were like i love treyarch's call of duty or i love Mm -hmm. the infinity awards call of duty and that was what was missing for me was being able to have that because like you said, the community was just fanatic. Yep. And I was like, I want to do stuff with that. I think that's where I got a taste of building a community, of building a brand based on Mm -hmm. community. What did you learn from Disney games that you loved and helped you keep digging into marketing? Absolutely. Also, Before I get into that, what you said was so insightful that you really wanted to connect with the community, but you didn't necessarily have that opportunity. And I've always found that's kind of the irony with like the bigger the company, the bigger the community, because the more eyes there are, Mm -hmm. but also the more there is red tape just in general, because the more eyes there are, the more risk there is with everything that's said. So I think that kind of transitions well into what I love so much about Disney games is Disney is a huge company where there's also a lot of red tape for the reasons I just said. But Disney games, and at the time what was Disney Interactive, which was the part of Disney I worked, was so new that it was almost like a startup within Disney. That's exactly what ours was too. which was sick because you have like the financial backing of Disney Inc. There's that security and, you know, we have like a sick office and campus Mm -hmm. and – you know, pizza every Friday, like things that like shouldn't be, that's like, we could all get pizza every Friday if we wanted to, but it's nice (laughs) when someone gives it to you. Yeah. But there was kind of this excitement to, we're building something new. Everything we're doing hasn't been done before. We get to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was really stressful, but I think that the thing I found most rewarding was I got to speak to a community who this was the first time they were having this two-way dialogue with this brand that they've been obsessed with their whole life. Yeah. Um, Because if you think about when I joined, social media had existed, but this was around the time where brands were like getting onto Facebook and actually like commenting back to people for the first time or like Mm -hmm. getting on Twitter and like having those conversations. And so I kind of got to lead or help lead like what is that strategy? When are we speaking to people? There were some fun things I got to do. Like we held a couple like 
sweepstakes competitions where we then mailed out signed Disney Infinity posters to winners. And I would be the one literally messaging them on Facebook, telling Uh, them they've won. uh, And the reaction that some people – like you find parents who play Disney Infinity with their kids and they were like, this is going to mean the world to my son to be able to give this to him. And so you kind of realize the power of social and like – Yes, we know because we've worked for brands that it's like there's just people on the other side of this. It's not like the – but they represent the brand and that means a lot to people. And I've worked in social for years now. I know how it works. But even if Girlboss were to DM me on Instagram, I would just get so excited. You know, like there's still just that – that connection with the brand, feeling that personalization, feeling like recognized by a brand that you respect and love. And it's cool to be on the other side of that and like making that moment for people. I think that's what I love about it. And I also, you know, a logo can't empathize with the fans. And I yep. that is like my favorite part of working for any brand is mm-hmm. being able to figure out because like you said I also was not a gamer I didn't play Call of Duty I had to learn I put like 400 hours in I was <laughs> no that is impressive I I got a 1.0 KD killed death Yo, ratio. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a console and when you come visit me here we're gonna play some games we'll just do like Call of Duty and like Disney Infinity and <laughs> call it a day but you know I think being able to figure out the culture of Mm -hmm. a community of fans, why people love this product, this thing, and then being able to figure out a way to make this virtual party that you guys can all like have jokes about and like be on the same page about is to me culture. Like you're creating that feeling, you know? And I think like that, is just so fun. That's why I really gravitated to user experience because, you know, I wanted to make the button that Mm -hmm. somebody interacts with. You know, I Mm. love that. That's so fun. That's so beautifully said. First of all, you're making me feel so much more powerful about my decision to be (laughs) like a social intern right out of college. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn for my (laughs) Disney job. Like I created culture at Disney. No, but it it is really true. I think that there's – it's one of those things too that I think brands also are now starting to take kind of what you said more into consideration. Yeah. I feel like for a really long time or at least the last what, like 10 years, seven years, social was often kind of looked at as – Yep, this is an extension of all the work we're doing. We know that it's important, but it was often like it just one person's job, right? Mm-hmm. Like social media manager as a title is absolutely insane because the expectation that one person is doing copywriting, they're doing creative oversight, they're doing community management, like there's all these things that go into social that to what you were saying, like they lead to this really incredible feeling and connection that people are then going to have with your brand. I feel like there are a lot of brands that are doing a great job of understanding the importance and are really like investing in it. Yeah. I think we're moving in that direction. I understand. I think things just take time. And I think as people are starting to understand the landscape of social and kind of get more education on it, I think things are changing. So speaking of free shipping. Did somebody say free shipping? Uh Uh-huh. Well, let's talk about ship station. Ship station. Okay, so at I Love Creatives, we use ship station. Nice. 
but not a lot of people might know what it is. I didn't know at first. You're like, is that where the ships go? Yeah, is that where the ships hang out? <laughs> ship station? It's a hot new ship club. Members only. Ship Members station. Only. Don't even try it if you're not a member. No. Get out of the port. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> Um, so, okay, let's say that you have your own online store. Okay. All right. I have and, my own online store. Okay, all right, picture it. What are you selling? I'm selling, uh, you know, maybe some jewels, maybe some hats. Oh, I'm selling hats for sure. Hats, yeah. Mini hats? Yeah, they're like really small and they're also like very novelty. I'm selling like beanies for dogs, very small dogs. Well, so this is the thing is like you too, Carly, you need to spend a lot less time shipping and a lot more time thinking up better ways to make dogs comfortable. Yeah, hats, more hats. I got to think of, I got more hat designs, but there's no time. I got to ship. There's no time. There's no time. <laughs> there's no time. So uh, this is great because just from my own experience, it's one of those things that you set up and you're like, why didn't I do this sooner? Oh, yes. Yeah. Even if you only sell a few products a week, it saves that much time. Anything saving you time is worth it, for sure. So ship more in less time. You just need to use our offer code GIRLBOSS and you get a 60-day free trial that's two months free, no hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in GIRLBOSS. That's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code GIRLBOSS and make that ship happen. Yeah! Yeah! So you were saying how video gaming or games wasn't mm -hmm. something that you were super passionate about. And mm -hmm. so you were ready to move on. Did you already have some brands in mind that you wanted to do? Or was it more of a what's out there first kind of thing? Yeah. So <laughs> this is funny. So I know I mentioned I always loved politics growing up. But I also, growing up, just had like this deep, deep interest in interior design. When I was younger, I think I asked my mom if I could be an interior designer. And she was just like, I, just do that in your free time. <laughs> I've now learned it would have been an extremely lucrative career had yeah. I pursued that, but I didn't. Um, but then I think after I did marketing starting in the campaign space, then I jumped into Disney and did games. I think something like triggered my brain of like, hey, I can use marketing as a vehicle to get into all of those side passions that I've wanted to do. Like oh. I can do marketing for the home design industry, or I could do mm. marketing for like a restaurant group because I love food, I love cooking. And so I just was like, I can use this as a vehicle. And when I was like in middle school, I was obsessed with Pottery Barn Teen. And then I went to college, I was obsessed with West Elm and they're owned by the same uh, company, Williams-Sonoma. And so when I was working at Disney, I actually like randomly, a friend sent me like a job posting for uh, social media slash uh, brand coordinator for West Elm. And they were like, this is like your dream job. And I was like, I think it is. And I I applied. I got it. It was in Brooklyn, which meant I got to go back home. Mm. And my brother had just had a baby. And so I wanted to like be around my nephew and it, all the stars kind of aligned. So I left Disney, moved back to New York and started working for West Elm on their brand marketing team. And then that put me in like a whole other level of marketing in terms of moving from games, going to another big company like 
because they're owned by William Sonoma, which is pretty substantial. Yeah. But working in the home space was it was totally different audience, totally different communities that I was speaking to, yet very similar scope of work in terms of hey, help drive this community, give people a meaningful interaction, and how do we continue to tell our brand story on these different platforms? So at West Elm, I was responsible for the social side, Mm -hmm. but I was also responsible for growing, editing, and maintaining their blog called Front and Main. So Mm -hmm. I ended up doing a lot of writing, a lot of home tours, a lot of recipes, a lot of Mm -hmm. um, really cool like interior design, like history writing, one of the coolest, coolest, coolest jobs I've ever had in my life, hands down. Why was it so cool? It was just an incredible place to be. And then this is also the time where like people my age were investing more into their homes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, I would make the argument, is because of social media, because people start seeing other people's homes on Pinterest and Instagram and they get inspired. Yeah. And they're like, I want to do that because you used to just see really nice homes and like architectural digest and you think I can never have that. Mm -hmm. These are designers creating this. And then you just start seeing like, you know, your coworker has this dope living room and you want to have this dope living room. So it was just a really fun time to be at West Elm because I think people were starting to care about their home. And I got to kind of be at not the forefront of that, but kind of work with people who were leading that charge. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I learned a lot and I, I really love home decor. So it was really cool for me to be doing marketing for a product that I personally was really passionate about. And so I think if you can personally have the connection to what you're marketing, I think that's what allows you to really like go into work and thrive. And you have to have that For me, at least, it has to run deeper. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that makes a lot of sense. There has to be some underlying fulfillment Mm -hmm. of your values or the things that you care about 100%, yeah. But then you left West Elm (laughs) (laughs) Um, about a year and a half later. I did, yeah. So interestingly... When I was working at West Elm, that was one of the highlights of my life. Like I'm still so close with all of my coworkers there. And I ended up getting the opportunity to essentially do what I was doing for West Elm for a startup. So I kind of knew I was going to have way less red tape, be able Mm. to take more risks, but also have the opportunity to get even more hands-on. And so I went to a small company at the time. I was like employee number 15, I think, called Parachute, which you might be familiar with. When I first went there, a lot of people didn't know what it was. And now I feel like whenever I meet people and I mention I used to work at Parachute, people are like, oh, the the bedding, bath, (laughs) the, the towels. I'm like, oh, yeah. But yeah, so I really loved what I was doing at West Elm. And I kind of got the opportunity to essentially keep doing it, but just with a larger scope. And I kind of was really eager to continue to grow. There's like two kind of schools of thought of, hey, you should stay at the same company, continue to grow, really like grow your expertise, show that you can be committed and dedicated, which I think for some people, that's absolutely what you should do, especially if you're working for a company you're really passionate about and see yourself growing there. I, from a very early period in my career, like realized that I really like to take on new challenges. Mm -hmm. I really like to learn new things. And I think that I was looking for just like new experiences, opportunities, new ways to continue to grow. 
both career-wise but also personally. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when I went to Parachute, that was probably the biggest growth period I had in my life. Like going from two huge companies like Disney and Williams-Sonoma to a tiny company where everything had to be done from the ground up was – it was a huge like learning experience. But I took so much away from that. I started there on the social digital content side and then ended up doing influencers, partnerships, events, experiential. And so then my role ended up turning into an all-encompassing brand role. And then I stayed there for a little over three years and got to work on so many projects because the team was so small. So you kind of have to wear a lot of hats. So I think not that anybody's asking, but if anybody wanted my advice, I tell everybody like go work for a startup for like at least a year. I think it is the most rewarding experience you can have. And I think also what's interesting is the timeline because Mm -hmm. you were at West Elm around the, I would say when Instagram and social is starting to kind of take off. And then Mm -hmm. when Parachute hits, now you have kind of this entrance of CPG brands that are, you know, direct to consumer and they are embracing partnerships and they're embracing influencers. And you're literally there and on the ground with one of the biggest brands now that started Mm -hmm. it all. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Did you know that going into it? Or was like, was there someone on your team that was like, yo, guys, guys, we're going to do influencer (laughs) partnerships. We're going to kill it. (laughs) I would say it was interesting. So going over to Parachute, they had already started doing some influencer work. And then I think in my time there, we kind of started to really just grow the brand more generally, which allowed us to work with more people. And we kind of came up with some really great strategies for how to do that, which was really fun at the time. But I think what was interesting was this was also the time where brands were realizing like, hey, there's more than one way to market to a consumer. In this modern digital age, people find out about brands through friends and word of mouth. And people look at influencers like they're their friends. So I feel like Going to Parachute at the time that I did, it was kind of like the stars aligned in terms of because it was a startup, everybody was so down to take risk. And we had a really, really fantastic CMO at the time who I think put a lot of trust in me and um, a couple others on the team to let's throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And I think that's where, I, I mean, I think of like great leaders that I've had, like that is the type of mentality where if you hire people you trust, you and you allow them to try new things and be creative, that's where you'll see, I think, the most growth and reward for a business. Honestly, like I I look back and why that was such a great experience. It's because I was allowed to like try things. And when things didn't work, it was okay because if it failed, we would say, here's why it failed and we would learn from it. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't a failure. So yeah, I think timing the stars aligned, like that was a definitely a time where there was a lot of new ways of marketing, including influencer marketing. And we were able to invest a lot in it because we had a marketing leader who believed in us to do it the right way. So to your point, you need to hire people who are curious, who are hungry, but are also like deep, deep consumers of culture. 
people who know like, hey, what are these new spaces and are looking for them and seeking them out. And that's why I think like also just diversity in the hiring process and people who like come from different parts of the world and different Mm -hmm. walks of life, who consume different parts of media, who are part of different subcultures, like having a mix of people like that is so important because then you are going to find these opportunities, these rare marketing opportunities that you haven't stumbled on and ways to market that you might not have considered. Oh, hey, Carly. Hey, Puno. How are you? Well, I'm good. I don't know if you know this, but this episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Ooh, HelloFresh. Have you ever used HelloFresh before? I have used HelloFresh before. They're really delicious, I must say. Okay, here's the thing about HelloFresh. It is quick, easy. Easy. Even a kid could do it. Even I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I liked about HelloFresh. 15 to 20 minute dinners. They have breakfast on the go. And it's just like all these options, basically, for people who forget to make food for themselves. Yeah. It's easy to forget to make food for yourself and hard to remember. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we both tried HelloFresh. They had 27 recipes to choose from. So many options. So many. I got the um, vegetarian option. I did too, actually. (gasps) Oh. You know, I love a little veggie. Yeah. A little veggie. Try not to eat the meaties. You know, just take a break. Yeah. They had the um, calorie smart choice too. Ooh, nice. Yes. It was really, really simple. All the little ingredients are there perfectly portioned. And then... Mm -hmm. And then I was like, Daniel, look at my uh, chili recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do a little salt bay action? Yeah. A little sprinkle, sprinkle? Yeah, with the cheddar cheese. I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's all stuck on my finger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, all you have to do, Girl Boss listeners, is go to HelloFresh.com slash GirlBoss12. Why 12, Puno? Is that your favorite number? Well, it's code GirlBoss12 for 12 free meals Ooh, 12 whole meals including dang. free shipping dang my i know i'm out i'm I out <laughs> I, I already signed up it's done <laughs> i'm eating good for the next that's a days. really good deal okay so go to hellofresh.com slash girlboss12 use the code what was that code carly girlboss12 Girlboss12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Free shipping, y'all. Don't sleep on it. Hello, Fresh. I see you. Going from Parachute to Nike, did you Mm -hmm. ever think about starting your own business or starting your own agency or freelancing? Because I just think it's really interesting that one, you're in a startup and two, this is part of the time right now where that's happening, like freelance is happening now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would be lying if I said that starting my own business never crossed my mind. Sure. Of course, yes. I worked for a startup. I feel like every single person in that office was like, "I what if I just did this? (laughs) You're making me do it. So I (laughs) – Yeah, everybody – like it. every single person like definitely had like an idea. Like I probably got like a pitch once a month that was like, what if? And I was like just – write write it down and in three months see if you still want to do it. Right. But yeah, I think what was fascinating was – our founder and CEO 
Ariel was one of the most inspiring people I've met in that she did start Parachute on her own at a very young age. Like you would think being around somebody so often who did start a business would make you feel like I could do this, but it's almost the opposite because you start to realize how much actual work it takes to start a business. It is not easy. The big mistake that I would say I see people make is there's now like this whole, I want to say like everybody kind of wants to start a business now. It's like the I new mean, thing. Girl boss, come on now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like, but I would say girl boss like was one of the like pioneers of like that space of like, hey, I loved this thing that I was doing mm-hmm. and it became insanely profitable and then it became the business versus it being like, hey, yeah, I just want to start something and I'm going to just figure out something to start so I can be a founder. And I think for me, I kind of almost went down that route. Like there were a couple of times where I thought of things I wanted to do and drive, but I was like, is this something I'm actually passionate about or do I just want to like do my own thing? But I think I've kind of so far, like I've found the jobs I've had so rewarding because I feel like I'm learning so much. And I personally feel like I still have so much to learn. Mm-hmm. And so even when I made the jump from parachute to Nike, it's like, it's a totally different world. And I, I learn something new and incredible every day. I think there's also a lot you learn when you freelance and probably when you start your own business, like it's a learning experience every single day. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, I think I'm just still in the space where I I value learning from other people that I work very closely with. Mm-hmm. I think I've also lucked out, honestly, and every single boss that I have had since graduating college at Disney, yeah. at West Elm, at Parachute, at Nike has been incredible. Yeah. I have yet, like, I don't know how, and I, I knock on wood, I don't want to jinx it. I've had a mentor in every manager that I've had such that it makes me want to just continue working places where I have really smart and brilliant leaders leading me because I feel like that's what allows me to to grow and to get better at what I do and be a better people manager to others. Mm-hmm. So one day, sure, maybe. But as of right now, I'm like, I don't know. I love I love what I do. And I think that at Nike is so great because it's a very big company. There's a lot of different kind of routes you can go within the company. And I think that there's just so much I have to learn there. So it hasn't really, yeah, it hasn't really been on my mind lately to start my own thing or to do freelance. That is a big reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast, because I think that founders and um, like people who started their own business, they get a lot of attention, but I know how important employees are. Like, I hope employees look at their environment as a place where they really can thrive the way that you're looking at it. And you're right. If you're fortunate enough to be in an environment where you have a mentor, you have resources, you have an incredible brand and community that you can build upon, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I recognize I've been incredibly fortunate in the jobs that I have had and with the managers that I have had. I have spoken to a lot of friends who have worked at jobs that have been unrewarding, where they have not had great managers. But I also think that people should also be open to 
moving around and not feeling like, hey, if I started at Disney in games, I need to keep going to these huge entertainment companies or I need to keep working in the gaming industry. It's like, no, like take the skills you have, hone in on them at different places. And I I think that's ultimately like why coming to Nike was so – I remember when I told my friends like, guys, I'm leaving LA, I'm moving to Portland, Oregon, and I'm going to Nike. Everybody was like, what the fuck? What are you doing? And I was just like, first of all, it's Nike, which I love sport. I think anybody who grew up with sport or is interested in sport, like it is a dream place to be. But I also knew that I've now honed in on this skill of brand and social. And I've now done that at two pretty large companies. I've done that at one tiny company and I've done it in the home space. I've done it for games. Like I now want to take it to the marketing leading company in the world. Mm. And I think, I hope as I talk about kind of my career trajectory, I think to the outside eye, like if you're just like look at my resume or my LinkedIn, it kind of seems like what's the, like what's the red thread going through all these places? And for me, it's been honestly things that I'm interested in, but I've always been doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's always been brand and digital marketing. And I've been able to really like sharpen that skill. And I think a lot of the sharpening came from doing it at different places. So your position at Nike was from the get-go global digital brand manager, which is a pretty Mm -hmm. big title. Yeah. Was that, was that hard to get or did you, you just wing it? You just got it. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah. I, it's always like, I think as you get a little bit older, it's always like a connection, right? Like somebody is kind of like, hey, I saw this job. I know the hiring manager for it. I think you'd be good at it. Would you want to apply? Mm. And so that was kind of what happened with me and Nike. But I still, you know, like interviewed and went through all of the rounds. And I know that there was a lot of people, I think, applied for the role that I had also applied to. But I think where I maybe stood out was that I did have kind of an untraditional route, you know, like I wasn't in the same company for the last 10 years with like one skill set. I had like a relatively diverse portfolio. And I think by the time that I did get hired at Nike, like I was kind of an expert in certain things. And I think they saw that. But yeah, jumping into Nike, it's a different different world from what I was doing, just in terms of like having a truly global role. I've actually found that to be one of the most like fascinating, like rewarding parts of working for Nike is you're constantly interacting with people from across the world if you work in global. And there's a lot of nuances in terms of communication, working styles, understanding consumers and communities that you maybe hadn't previously like spent that much time having to understand having worked in one country. Mm-hmm. Nike is very different than any place I've ever worked, but it's definitely the most fascinating and exciting, I would say. And I'm not really familiar with what a global brand manager does. Yeah. Yeah. Who among us is? (laughs) But (laughs) it is a bit complex. So I will caveat this with saying whenever I try and explain my job at Nike to people who don't work at Nike, it is very confusing. So I'll (laughs) say it. I'm going to try and like simplify it as much as possible because it's it's a bit complex. But uh, essentially, like a brand, a brand role at Nike is often depending on what team you're in. But I'm in the brand defining team, so my role is really about 
brand strategy for Nike and kind of helping to determine what are the big moments that matter to the brand, both in like sport and culture, um, and how are we showing up in those moments, and how are we connecting with people and the consumer in those moments, and kind of working back. And when you're on the global team, it's kind of doing that at a really high level and working with other brand teams across the globe to partner with them to take that strategy and make it applicable to their consumer in their part of the world. Mm. And we work together to bring these campaigns to life Mm -hmm. in partnership with so many other teams across the org. And so there's no like one team that is just like running point on everything start to finish at Nike you could be leading a campaign and there are still probably like 20 people working on it that you might not have directly worked with Mm. but have inputted into it in some like really tangible and significant way it's pretty it's pretty mind-blowing but it's it's incredibly fun it's incredibly rewarding what is an example of a campaign that you've executed i can say like a super recent one because it just went live so we just launched our Play New campaign, and it's just this really fun and joyful, lighthearted film we call our brand Anthem, and it just launched last Thursday. I actually, I had like a really exciting moment. I was watching, I'm a huge Knicks fan. We're typically horrible, and we've been absolutely killing it. We actually just made it into the playoffs. Anyways, I was watching the Knicks play your Lakers the other day, the ad was on TV, and that was like a really exciting moment for me. I obviously am sitting here in the United States, so I saw it on TV here. But if I was sitting somewhere in Europe or even like Latin America, I would have also seen that ad somewhere. Mm. So that was a true like global message, global campaign that's available all over, which is pretty exciting. And it spanned TV, it spanned digital, yeah. print. Yeah. The whole, the gamut. TV, digital, print. We did some really cool partnership work with Snapchat and TikTok. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much global. This one was really exciting for me because it was my first big campaign on the brand defining brand team. Mm-hmm. So I got to see this one kind of from the early ideation stages of it through the execution stage of it. So since you got to see all stages of it and there's yeah. so many people involved – how do you guys manage opinions? Ooh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> if there's one, yeah, if there's one thing I've learned, especially at Nike where you work with so many people, but also in past roles as well, like I've found that over communication is always a really efficient way to manage feedback and also making it clear when there is the time to feedback versus when is the time to not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always a lot of opinions and I think with brand campaigns it's always tricky because I don't think in the history of brand campaigns at a company that have more than 20 people there's ever been one that's gone out where every single person in the company like loves it and is like this is yes, this is exactly how it should have come together. But I think it's a matter of over communicating, making sure that the people who our stakeholders and who need to be in the room are in the room. Mm -hmm. And also, I think just like a word to the wise, something I I learned this in past roles that a lot of people just want to feel heard. Yeah. Like, especially in in the workplace. And I feel this way. Like, even if you don't take my advice or my feedback, I just want to know that you 
heard mm-hmm. it and acknowledged mm-hmm. it. And if you didn't take it, it's sometimes really great to know why. And that's something that I haven't actually always been good at doing with other people of I work in a role where there's a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of opinions. And sometimes I feel like I just can't acknowledge and address all of them. Mm-hmm. But I think making the time to do that is so important. I've now gotten to a place where if somebody gives me feedback on something, I really look into it. I really like heavily think about it. And if for whatever reason, like the team has decided not to go that route, I follow up and I say, hey, really appreciated this feedback. We're actually going to do this and here's why. Mm -hmm. And I give the reasoning. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I mean about overly communicating. Like I just try to always share the reasons why I'm doing something the way I'm doing it. And if there's feedback of why we should do it a different way, the reasons why we're not. Mm -hmm. I also, I take feedback a lot personally. Like I try not to have an ego at work. And if people say to me like, hey, have you considered doing it this way? And I haven't. Mm -hmm. I have no problem saying, whoa, I haven't. That's a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. Let's try that. That's one of those things that I've kind of learned from like leaders that I respect are the people who do that. So I try to be like that. I think it's really easy to get caught up in ego at work, especially when you're like, I'm the brand person and somebody who doesn't work in brand is giving me brand advice and it feels like it's like (laughs) stepping on my toes. It's like, no, like sometimes people just have really good ideas and it doesn't really matter like what team they work on and what their title says. Like anybody can have a good idea. And I think you're never in the right role if you're not open to listening to those ideas. How do you, I'm because I'm sure you have hired a handful of people. Mm-hmm. How do you know that they're going to be a good marketer? Ooh, I, yeah, that's a great one. Um, I don't. And I think where I probably did like the most like true like at hiring was at Parachute. And the people that I hired, I think were people who I could tell were just like really smart. Like being able to have a conversation and show genuine curiosity and knowledge, even if it's not about what you're interviewing for, I think for me at least goes a long way. I think if you have people who just, like I always say, like hire smart people because they can learn how to do the things that you need them to do. Mm -hmm. But there could be somebody who is really good at one thing, but if they don't really have the ability to think on their feet and to just problem solve in general, like depending on what the role is, like that might not be what you want. And I find that digital marketing and therefore brand marketing are changing so quickly with just the way the world is changing. Mm -hmm. So you're never really going to find somebody who is going to be able to execute like brand marketing strategy perfectly because it's always going to be changing. But I hire people who have an interest and curiosity about the world around them, who know things that I don't. Mm and who are problem solvers and fast learners. I've never really met like people who excel in marketing who were like, I always wanted to do marketing. And I always find that a little weird too. Like I didn't major in marketing in college. Like I was a writer and a poli-sci major. And I think having other skills Mm -hmm. and interests are what make you a good marketer because you kind of understand like how to speak to people and different types of people in a different in a unique way. Yeah. Okay. This is the final <laughs> question. I swear to God, I could talk to you forever though. Um <laughs> I love it. This is very fun for me. So right now we are all about redefining success. And 
I would love to know how do you define success? How has it changed as you've evolved? Yeah. Wow. For me, success is am I exceeding the standards I've actually set for myself? That's success. So I think that seems maybe obvious, but I personally, like even right out of college, like even in some of my last couple of jobs, like I really define success as like, am I impressing people? Do people think I'm smart? Am I getting promotions? Am I making more money? Like it was these things. And now I kind of am at a point where it's like, nope, because even when that has happened, like I haven't always felt like I was succeeding because the standards you have for yourself are oftentimes very different than the standards you might think that like your company or your boss has for Mm. you. But I feel like if I set my own standards of like this is what success means and I exceed those, like to me that's successful. Mm. It's exceeding the standards I set for myself, be it not just at work but in life. I think even things as like I've had a successful day if I have gone Mm -hmm. on a run because that's the standard I set for myself is like three days a week I'm going on a run. And if I hit that mark on that day, like that was a successful day. Even if everything else in my day like did not go well, like I had a successful day. Well, it was so good chatting with you. I know you have a very busy day. Oh, thank you. This was very fun. I appreciated it. This was like a great conversation for me to have. Let's do it again in Palm Springs. Okay. The best way you can support Girlboss Radio is by hitting that subscribe button. Girlboss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio. If you're looking for design or production, check out ilovecreatives.studio. Or if you're a creative slashy looking to stack your digital skills, use the code GIRLBOSS for 10% off at ilovecreatives.com. Original music composed by Mija, and this episode was produced by Juliana Clark, Imani Leonard, Christopher Olin, and Courtney Kosak. Engineering was done by Michael Castaneda, and our editorial director is Clemence. Special thanks to Nora Agency and Kaylee. Until next week, Puno is out. See ya!